Good morning. morning. Welcome back to all my family. I tell you, the house was so quiet for the last two weeks. I actually had to cook, (laughs) and we had to take the dog out, and then I would come home at night and be like, Benjamin's working. There's nobody to talk to. I was lonely, so I'm glad they're all home. (laughs) And I'm really excited to hear all of their wonderful stories. I've heard just snapshots so far because when they came home we started greeting them and taking pictures and Priscilla looks at Benjamin and goes I've been traveling for 30 hours no pictures (laughs) 38 okay see she was so tired she couldn't remember exactly how long it had been all right well um, my name is Joy I'm back again this is the third week of a three-part series that I've been giving regarding worship and this is the final week this is it So I'm going to recap what we've talked about the last two weeks for those of you who may not have been here or might just need a good reminder. So let's do that. Uh, The first week was titled, Why We Worship. And these were some of the main things we talked about. We exist to worship. We read a bunch of scripture verses that showed God created us for the purpose of worship, and that is our primary reason for existence. We, things that we are created to do, we are also compelled to do. So if you're not worshiping God, you're probably worshiping something or multiple somethings because things that our bodies, physical bodies were designed to do or our emotions were designed to do, love, uh, peace, we're compelled to find those things some way. So whether you like it or not, you're probably worshiping. Also, worship is a verb. It requires action. It is participatory and it engages the senses. We looked at a whole bunch of words from the scriptures at their original meanings, and all of them that had to do with worship were an action, an activity. Worship is also our destiny. We read a bunch of scriptures in Revelation that showed us that worship is the primary activity of what is going to go on in heaven for eternity. So this here is just a taste, and it's preparation to prepare our spirits, because our bodies may not be with us in heaven, but our spirits will. So what we do with our spirit on this earth is going to matter when we get to heaven and how you've prepared yourself. You don't start over. That part of yourself continues. Um, your body starts over, which is good for some of us that are, will be ready to get out of our bodies by the time we pass away. <laughs> Worship is also a continual way of life. It's not something we show up and do only on Sunday mornings. And if that's all we do, we're going to have a very shallow experience of worship. It's going to take personal and private worship growth, spending time with the Lord during the week to really experience um, even a fraction of what God hopes for us for worship and what I hope for us as a body. Also, uh, and that really, I already kind of said the next one, uh, to experience effective corporate worship. So even those of us who might be doing our worship during the week, if we come here and we're maybe 10, 20, 30 percent of the people in the room, our corporate experience will be diminished because we're all bringing something to each other. And so the more that, and that's part of the responsibility of the body of Christ, which doesn't just happen in worship, it happens in all kinds of areas. We affect each other and what we do corporately moving towards God and moving toward what he's called us to affects each of us individually. Um, And I think that's important to remember because sometimes, especially in America, I think we have this mentality that we can just live our lives and, you know, we know we probably affect our spouse or our kids, the people that are in our home, 
but I don't know that we really get a clear picture of how much our choices in our lives really affect all of the people that are, are surrounding us. And this is an illustration of that. And then finally, the Lord is desperate for our worship. We read scriptures that showed us the Lord practically crying and begging and pleading with his people to come back to him, to come back to his heart and do what they were created to do and worship him. And then we um, kind of the, the action item for that was to increase our private worship. And the three suggestions that I made for that were to make yourself increasingly present to God during moments of your day, to just, whether they're a peaceful moment and you have time to just stop and pause and think, or whether they're a frustrated moment and you're thinking about something else and you need to just bring God into that moment, to just stop and say, okay, God, I'm here, this is what's going on, and I just want to make myself aware of your presence right now. And then also to set aside time regularly for private worship. And then uh, to offer yourself completely to God and rid your life of of sin or things that are distractions. And I told a story, which I'll just remind you guys really quick, about how I had been pulling weeds at my house while my family was gone, trying to do a few little things while they were gone to make the house look better. And I was so irritated that just a few weeks ago, my mom and I had spent all this time pulling all of these weeds, and we have these beautiful plants, and some of them are, the plants are dying, and the weeds are just everywhere. And I was trying to figure out, why is it that these great plants die and the weeds flourish? And it just hit me that it was an illustration of our lives, that the weeds in our lives, the junk in our lives, is the default. Sin is the default. Nasty attitudes is the default. Road rage is the default. Yelling at our spouses and our kids is the default. And to achieve something greater than that, we have to cultivate it. We have to water it. We have to garden it. We have to put time and energy and focus and our character and our will into it. So that goes with worship, too. In order to experience effective worship, we can't just go by default. We're going to have to cultivate it. All right, and then last week, we talked about obstacles to worship. There were a lot of things that we covered in this message in detail, so if you didn't get to hear it, um, both of these other, our, uh, other messages are online on our website, the website, vineyardsa.org, and they're really the knowledge and the theory and the heart behind what I'm going to talk about today, so if you didn't get to hear them, I encourage you to go back and listen to them. It'll make more sense in the whole picture. Um, But some of the obstacles we discussed were that we don't understand God. If we really understood how incredible and amazing that he was, we would be helpless to do anything but worship. So we talked about some of those things that are amazing. We talked about some attributes of creation that were just mind-boggling. And you'll have to listen to the message to go those because it took, like, all this time because it was so awesome. So I'm not going to go into it. Uh, We also talked about maybe we don't understand the cross or maybe we don't truly believe the resurrection. And uh, to counteract that obstacle, we discussed that according to several respected secular atheists, specifically a man named Dr. Simon Greenleaf who was wrote, uh, he was a Harvard University professor who wrote one of the most foundational treatises on law that still exists today. Uh, He wrote a He set out to prove that the resurrection was false and ended up changing his mind and concluded that the jurisdiction of legal evidence showed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the best supported event in history. (laughs) 
Then we also talked about, well, maybe we're not confident in the reliability of Scripture. I, I think if we really believed that the Bible was absolutely true, we wouldn't try to get away with doing so much of what it tells us not to. And so we discussed some of the reliability of the Bible. We compared the New Testament as an ancient historical document to the writings of Aristotle, Herodotus, and Homer, which all of you would have studied in school. And the numbers were something like six copies, eight copies, and 600 copies compared to 5,600 copies of the New Testament, ancient copies that we have complete. Um, Just no question, the Bible is the most reliable ancient document in history. I don't understand why they don't teach it in school when they teach those other guys. (laughs) We could... We can hypothesize, right? (laughs) They don't want to have to do what it says. (laughs) Then we also discussed another obstacle is the presence of suffering and tragedy on this earth. It prevents us from trusting God or maybe understanding why he does what he does. When we see suffering, we experience suffering, we hear of great tragedy in the earth. And it makes it hard to us believe that he's the kind of God that's worthy of worship. And we talked about several books on suffering where people studied those who had been through extreme suffering and extreme tragedy and those who kind of spent the rest of their life unhappy and those who somehow came to a level of peace and joy uh, and were able even to express the gospel as a result of their lives and the suffering that they had been through. And the conclusion of that um, message there's a book by Phil Yancey called Where is God When It Hurts, was that pain does have a value in our lives. And he taught us to ask what now God questions when we're in times of suffering instead of why God. And the people who, that he studied who asked why God questions were the ones that just got stuck in those doldrums of why, I don't understand, why me? And the ones who were able to move past that asked Okay, what now, God? This is horrible. I'm going to be paralyzed from neck down for the rest of my life. I have lost two or three of my children or four of my children and my wife. What now? How can you use me now? What is the next thing? How can I possibly come through this? What can I do going forward in my life? And then we also discussed that worship itself can sustain us during suffering. And I I shared some of my own story of that. And then in the end, we talked about how worship should cost us something. We read a story about David, King David, in the Bible, and um, how he had done something God had told him not to do, and as a result, 70,000 Israelites were wiped out in a day. And when he saw what was happening, and he broke down, and he went to worship God, he wanted to worship at a certain spot, And the guy who owned the land said, oh, let me give you everything you need. You can have the land, you can have the cattle, you can have everything. And David said, no, I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. So we were reminded that in order to worship God, not in order to, but you see that David wanted to give something to the Lord that cost him something. And sometimes worship is going to cost us something. Maybe it might cost our pride. Maybe it might cost our time. And... So we said, what is it going to cost you? And then we said, it's time to die. Because that is what our flesh has to do in order to worship is die. So that our spirit can rise up and worship God. So there's the bullet points from the last two weeks. Let's pray.
Lord, I just thank you so much that you have been gracious in coming and meeting with us as we called on you to do this morning. How you have met us during the week, how we've noticed your presence. And Lord, maybe, maybe we noticed your presence when we were able to restrain our temper when someone frustrated us and we knew that your Holy Spirit was helping us. And maybe we felt your presence this week when we were just in a quiet place, driving, thinking, pausing. And instead of going to a place of sadness, we reminded ourselves that you're with us and that we can worship you. And that brought us joy. And it helped us press through. And I thank you that however it is that you meet us, that you're just longing to do so. And I, I know that you are already here this morning and that you are waiting this morning. I ask that we would make our hearts receptive to what it is you have to give us as instruction today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let me give you the little forecast today before I quite go into it. The forecast today is primarily instruction. We're going to talk about forms and expressions of worship in Scripture that we see occurring. So we know what does worship look like. But before we go into that, let me give you a little bit of background. I don't know when this struck me, but I, it struck me when I was preparing some, this, this message at some point that worship is the reason that music exists. I love music. I have been a musician since I was 10 years old. My parents have been musicians and vocalists since before me and my sisters were born. So from my earliest memories, there was singing at the house. There was singing at birthdays. That, and it wasn't just like happy birthday with a bunch of off-key. There was like harmonies and all this awesome stuff. And at Christmas, we would always sing carols, and we even made up our own songs to go with certain uh, Christmas traditions that we had. And um, I love, there's Christian bands and artists that I totally love, and there's some secular ones that I think are phenomenal. And I, I love music. I'm one of those people who loves music. I, my husband and I do some wedding videos on the side, and I can always tell which of the couples loves music. Because instead of saying, well, you know, we like country, but no rap. Just do whatever you want within that. Or the ones who say, I want this artist, this artist, this artist, and make sure you include these three songs. Those are people who love music, right? And I would be the same way. Um, And so music exists for that purpose, just like we exist for that purpose. I just thought it was cool that God created music. He was creative, and he created music. And that's, I mean, it, it exists. We, we get enjoyment out of it, but worship is its purpose, and it's our purpose. It's also, worship is also the reason that our bodies, our emotions, our intellect, and our spirits exist. So we should be using all of those things, every part of us, inside, outside, and floating in the air, spirit, to be used in worship. I think that the problem that we have in this culture is that... Um, we have trouble using our voices and our bodies in worship because there's a lot of activities that we do in which it's not okay to use our bodies or our voices. Uh, there's a lot of concept of restraint and just self-control that's, that's present at times. And I, in other cultures, when you go and you see them anywhere where there's music, whether it's church or outside of church, they're much more demonstrative. So it's kind of a cultural battle that we have in this country. And I think that we need to overcome that. Author Richard Foster writes, Standing, clapping, dancing, lifting hands, making music, singing 
Our posture is consistent with praise. To sit still observing or being apathetic is simply not appropriate for praise. (laughs) Kneeling, bowing, lying prostrate. Our posture is consistent with the spirit of adoration and humility. We are quick to object to this line of teaching. People have different temperaments. That may appeal to the emotional types, but I'm naturally quiet and reserved. Isn't the kind of work... It isn't the kind of worship that will meet my need. What we must see is that the real question of worship is not what will meet my need. The real question is what kind of worship does God call for? It is clear that God calls for wholehearted worship. And it is reasonable to expect wholehearted worship to be physical as it is to expect it to be cerebral. Often our reserved temperament is just fear of what others will think or unwillingness to humble ourselves before God and others. Of course, we have different temperaments, but that must never keep us from worshiping with our whole created being. And Don McMinn, a pastor and leadership speaker, said, Our entire being is fashioned as an instrument of praise, just as a master violin maker designs an instrument to produce maximum aesthetic results. So God tailor-made our bodies, souls, spirits to work together in consonance to produce pleasing expressions of praise and worship. When we use body language to express praise, that which is internal becomes visible. I want to talk also for just a moment about emotions because I think we have an obstacle uh, in the United States. Sometimes we're uncomfortable expressing certain emotions. I think anger is very acceptable in the United States. I think lust is very acceptable in the United States. But there's a lot of positive ones that for some reason are not acceptable. Uh, Yeah. Um, Physically, Juan Juan Campos is not here to correct me, but from the the research that I've done, sensations are going to enter your body at the back of your brain, spinal cortex. Then they're going to move across the top or the middle of your brain. That's where your emotions are. This is really, really simplified breaking it down. It's much more complex than this, but uh, it'll help us understand this. Then they move from their emotions to the sensations are moving, and they come to the front of the brain. And this is where your logic and your reasoning is. And then the emotions and the reasoning talk to each other. They go back and forth, and the emotions say one thing, and the logic says the other thing. And eventually, as those communication pathways cross, you get a balanced expression of whatever sensation came in in the back of your brain. Some of you, the emotions win the argument most of the time. Others of you, your reasoning is going to win the argument most of the time. And if you have certain mental disorders, this communication doesn't happen at all or happens very little. And thankfully, they've found some ways to help people like that. uh, So in regard to our emotions for worship, as any other part of Christian living, our emotions and our reasoning have to talk to each other, and they have to communicate what we know rationally based on how we're feeling and how we're feeling with what we know rationally. So our emotions alone, say your emotion is, I don't want to be at worship today, is not the basis of all your decision-making because your reasoning is part of that decision. And also, your reasoning doesn't have to tell your emotions, get it up, you know, bring it up. Because your reasoning can say, I'm choosing to worship. I'm choosing to do something that I know God asks me to do. But our emotions can help engage us and motivate us, certainly. We've all experienced that. And they can motivate us to use our bodies and take action. When 
something is going on that's so exciting. I, Benjamin and I did a wedding video last night, and these two girls, they must live in some other parts of the country. And they come running. I wish I had asked Mercy to do this. They come running up to each other. They're wearing stilettos and little cocktail dresses, and they're like, best friends. And I was like, and these women are, they're probably not 30, but they're definitely over 25. And then the bride was standing there. She goes, would you do that again for the camera? Because I was standing, but I hadn't gotten it. And then I did it again. And I mean, it was really intense, right? That's totally not me. Even as much as, I mean, I did run and throw my arms around my mom when I saw her yesterday, but there wasn't this like screaming fit. But regardless, what was inside of me and what was inside of those girls, all that excitement and energy still moved from inside of them out of them and was expressed through their body. And we can't stand here with our hands in our pockets when there's something that vibrant inside of us. And on the other hand, I have learned to make my heart comply with my behavior when my emotions are out of line. Sometimes our heart moves our body, and sometimes our body moves our heart. They're not exclusive of each other. We're a whole person being spiritual, emotional, mental, physical. Lamar Bashman, a worship leader and founder of worshipinstitute.com, said, When I worship, I would rather my heart be without words than my words be without heart. But this doesn't mean that you sit back and cross your arms when your words are without heart. It means you get your heart into obedience with your spirit. Our actions accurately reveal what's in our hearts. And our greatest love is shown in sacrifice. If it's not a sacrifice to worship, then what are you really giving to God? Richard Foster, a Quaker theologian and author, said, As worship begins in holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. Holy obedience saves worship from becoming an opiate, an escape from the pressing needs of modern life. So I'm not asking you to hype it up. And I'm also asking when you don't feel like it to get your heart in line with your body. To get your body in line with your heart. To get your spirit in line with your heart and your body. And use your whole person to worship. Because it's what God calls us to do. All right, the rest of this is going to be a whole bunch of awesome scriptures regarding what it looks like to use our bodies and our spirits and our hearts together in worship. And so I want to just review really quickly some guidelines that we've heard before from this stage from some of our other pastors regarding interpreting scripture. Um, We're going to build a theology of how to worship today on the whole scripture. For example, some uh, Christian churches today don't use instruments during their services. And one of the reasons why they do this is because in the New Testament churches, uh, there's no instruments mentioned. There are several verses where Paul commands the church to sing, but he doesn't say sing and play music. Um, and so when they're looking strictly at this little box of the New Testament churches that Paul instructed, they don't see an instruction for them to use instruments. And so they say no instruments in church. So, But we're not going to do that. We're not going to restrict our theology of worship to this little section. We're going to look to all of the Old Testament, because you, you, tr- you, you interpret Scripture according from cover to cover. 
not just isolating a section. So in the whole Old Testament, we're going to see tons of references to worship and all different forms and expressions of worship uh, and commands for how to use them, instruments and what type of instruments and how to use them. And we'll see examples of them being used in worship. And then, if you want to talk about the New Testament, in Revelation, there are instruments and there is singing in their worship, and that's in heaven. So if we can see it throughout the history of the Israelites and we can see it in heaven, I don't think that tells us that we shouldn't have instruments in church because we need to consider the whole thing. So that's the type of thing I'm talking about. And also, the Apostle Paul even said, he assured us, all scripture is inspired by God, all scripture, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in what is right. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Some principles that uh, Clara discussed a few weeks ago for interpreting scripture is according to our stance as empowered evangelicals. Empowered evangelicals means we believe the word of God is true, but we are also empowered by the Holy Spirit. We should also interpret scripture to promote the spread of the gospel. And with an eye to the coming kingdom of God. Where is God taking us? So if we see worship in Revelation, that's where God is taking us. What is the coming kingdom going to look like? And how can we live our lives in line with that kingdom? Also with a commitment to yield ourselves to scripture. And with a commitment to be willing to change our opinion to God's opinion if we have the wrong one. And then some additional guidelines for interpreting scripture are grammatical integrity, historical integrity, contextual integrity, and timeless truth. And when we're talking about context, we're talking about the immediate surrounding verses, and again, we're talking about the whole scripture. This is one of the reasons, side note, one of the reasons why people get hung up sometimes in the various women shouldn't preach in the church, and it's because they're looking at certain verses and isolating them, and they really do seem to say that. Even if you go to the ancient languages, a few of them are just, they're, they're on the line, But when you take it into the whole picture, you see that there's women who were called deacons, the same word that was used to refer to men. And you see that there is other women who were instructed to prophesy and preach. You see women in the Bible prophesying and teaching and leading the Israelites. So that's just taking things out of context. You have to take the whole scripture and go, okay, I'm interpreting it this way, and that just is clashing with something else. God's not going to contradict himself. So somewhere in our understanding must be off, and we've got to figure out what is the part that's off. So, um, so today we're going to take illustrations from the entire scripture to teach us what does worship look like, how do we worship, what sounds, movements, and expressions are appropriate for worship. I've broken these down into three categories. The first category is noise. And in noise we have singing, making music, Silence, which isn't really noise, it's the opposite, but anyway. And shouting. In posture, the category posture, we have standing, kneeling, and face down. In movement, we have clapping hands, lifting hands, dancing, and jumping. And we're going to see all of these in scripture. Graham Trescott, an author and missionary pastor, said, When God's people begin to praise and worship him using the biblical methods he gives, the power of his presence comes among his people in an even greater measure. And then the last issue that I want to discuss is our expression, before we go into all uh, the noise posture movement, is our expressions of worship masculine or feminine. I think that sometimes... um, 
church could seem like what's expected of you is maybe more feminine. You're supposed to sit still and listen. And maybe guys like to move around a little bit more. Um, you might see people crying or dancing, and guys are like, yeah, not so much. And so I want to keep in mind that we're going to talk about forms of worship that are masculine, like shouting and applause, and even silence is masculine. (laughs) (laughs) Women who are married, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Don't you want to talk? Sure. What do you want to talk about? I don't know. Just talk about something. Well, like what? All right. I love it.